0: Well, good morning on this Ash Wednesday, February the 17th, praying today for all those across our country who remain without power, um, recognizing that in some places across the country, people are completely unprepared for um, such eventualities, particularly when um, the threat is cold and not heat or cold, severe cold and not, let's say, you know, rising water. Um, Heat, I mean, the kind that uh people ordinarily have to deal with if there's a power outage is not as deadly um as is severe cold and so let's be mindful no matter where we live that the people who are experiencing this are in real pain and um and experiencing a very real challenge so let's be praying for folks let's be doing what we can let's be um uh coming alongside those churches in those communities that are opening their doors as warming centers um on and on and on. So, uh, just be be engaged in ways today that are prayerful and helpful um and gosh, not mocking. I just I've read a lot of mockery on social media of what's happening um across the southern states related to people experiencing the severe cold and let, let's let's not behave in that way. Um all right, today is Ash Wednesday. Uh you're going to hear about a number of Ash Wednesday modifications um, related to the coronavirus, you're going to hear about Ash Wednesday drive throughs self-serve takeaway ashes available for carry-out, sprinkling of ashes on the head instead of the imposition in the form of a cross on the forehead, or the use of a cotton swab to avoid actual physical contact when ashes are being imposed in the traditional way. You're going to hear that a Roman Catholic archbishop in San Antonio has granted dispensation from fasting and abstinence on this Ash Wednesday because of, well, you guessed it, the weather. You're going to hear reductions of the solemn practices, uh, uh, the solemn practice of Ash Wednesday to um, something that in one place is called Ash in a Dash. Ash in a Dash. So here's my point today is a day that uh, Christians use as a marker in time prior to the events of, of Holy Week and ultimately Easter. This inaugurates the season of Lent. Um, it's designed to help Christians intentionally journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. It's to prepare us for the events of the Upper Room and the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest and the trials and the mockery of our Christ, and yes, the cross and the grave. In some ways, it might be easier to adopt Lenten practices of solitude and fasting and prayer and scripture reading and reflection and confession because of COVID, but it also might feel to some people like last year's Lenten season um, has been going on for a whole year. And so I just invite you to consider this today. Be honest with God be gentle with yourself and others, open the Word, fall to your knees, find a way to bow down and get real with God today. Uh, if you need a scripture passage to uh, help you do that, let me commend to you in terms of where in the Word you might find yourself today. Proverbs 28:13. whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but it's patience towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Acts 3.19 Now repent of your sins and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. 1 John 2.2 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Read Ezekiel eighteen today. Read Romans ten. Read Acts two. Let me conclude uh, with this verse from these verses from the opening of Romans chapter twelve. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Next up, uh, I've got Dan Darling, Vice President of the NRB, National Religious Broadcasters, also the author of the Characters of Easter as we enter into this season of Lent. Who are the characters we might encounter? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wow.
1: wondrous love is this, so oh my soul. We will raise.
0: All right. Joining me now, Dan Darling, vice president of the National Religious Broadcasters, author of many books, pastor as well, husband, dad, brother in Christ. I think I'll just stop right there. Dan, welcome. Welcome back, man.
2: Carmen, thanks for having me on. Are you also like shoveler
0: shoveler of snow, builder of snowmen?
2: Well, scraper of of ice.
0: Scraper Uh, of ice.
2: (laughs) Once every five years here. In Tennessee,
0: there you go, scraper of ice. Um, we're we're celebrating. Uh, in in, I mean, it's cold. It's cold, and it's horrible for so many people, particularly people in Texas. We've been praying for them, folks across Alabama. Um, but you know, I, I'll I'll just go ahead and admit, um, it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun uh, to have the snow, at least a little bit. One week of winter. Um, you know, I I shall not turn down. Let's talk about the characters of Easter. Today is Ash Wednesday. We're many, many Christians turning intentionally toward the events of Holy Week and ultimately Easter. And you have written a book to help us do just that. Tell us about the characters of Easter.
2: Well, I'm excited about this book uh, because uh, it helps us think, walks us through this amazing event, you know, the the, the pivotal event in human history through the eyes of uh, the the ordinary people who are swept swept up in it. I mean, I think today we We think of Peter and John as icons, disciples. We've named cities and children and uh, churches after them. But in the first century, they were just ordinary people who were caught up in in God's plan of redemption.
0: So who who might we meet um, this time around that is surprising in terms of, you know, this isn't like uh, necessarily – who we who we first think of when we think of the characters of Easter? So who's um, who's in this book, the characters of Easter that might not immediately spring to mind in terms of the narrative?
2: Well, you you might think of of Peter and John and Thomas and uh, some of the disciples, of course, but I also profile people like Barabbas, who was uh, arrested for insurrection and guilty of it was a kind of despised criminal who was set free uh, unexpectedly uh, because of uh, the crowd's bloodlust for wanting Jesus to be to be killed and Pilate obviously acquiesced to that. We'll also meet uh the the five women there's at least five women who are named uh as being the first witnesses to seeing Jesus uh risen from the dead as to seeing the empty tomb and the significance of of that being five women. Now, it wasn't Um, The disciples who were chosen by God to be the first evangelists of the resurrection, it wasn't uh, someone like Pilate who had all the power. It wasn't the religious leaders. It was five ordinary women who were chosen to both witness the empty tomb but be the first to tell everyone else. Uh,
0: Chapter 9 has uh, the secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, um, for people who have watched the first season of The Chosen, uh, I think that Nicodemus has taken on character qualities that we may not have seen um, in in reading what, for some people, has become kind of a flat story. Um, what What are you um, d- describe the Nicodemus and the Joseph of Arimathea that you introduce in this book, the characters of Easter?
2: Yeah. So I love what The Chosen has done with Nicodemus. I just love that whole show and just the character development. It's just amazing. I want to urge everyone to go see it. And when the second season comes out to go watch it, Uh, Nicodemus is an interesting character. He is uh, a religious leader at the time. He's probably the most devout religious leader. Think of someone like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, uh, who's just admired. He, but he, is inquisitive about jesus he's watching these miracles he's watching what's happening and he's interested and he meets with jesus at night Now, a lot of christians reading that think oh he he didn't have courage he had to meet with jesus at night i don't think that's the case i actually think he met with jesus at night for a number of reasons i think number one because he wanted to get away from the crowds and really have an honest conversation and number two i i think you know he had to be wise about his position as a spiritual leader but then he shows up later in the narrative along with joseph arimathea who's a wealthy benefactor. Both of them were mem- were members of the Sanhedrin, the 70-member Jewish ruling council. They were Pharisees, which made them a minority among the Sadducees on that council. They were also a minority in that they believed in Jesus. They were disciples. They were secret disciples. But when it came time to make their faith public, they did. And they requested the body of Jesus. They, they wanted to give him a proper burial as befitting the king of the Jews. And they took great risk in identifying with Jesus. Uh, they did not know that this burial would be temporary. They did not realize that this would launch a movement that would last 2,000 years. Uh, but they they really are commendable people for being in a high position of leadership and risking everything to believe in Jesus.
0: So Dan Darling and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the characters of Easter, Dan's brand new book. Um, and we're going to uh, I'm going to ask Dan to tell us a little bit about Chapter 10, The Executioner's. Who were the Romans? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. And he left, he rose, Dan Darling serves uh, as vice president of the National Religious Broadcasters in the area of communication. He is also a pastor and an author and a friend. The book we are featuring today is his new one, "The Characters of Easter," and uh, I have just learned we have copies to give away. So, so let me start doing that. You should text the word "book" to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, text the word "book" to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four to enter the drawing for the copies of "The Characters of Easter," the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. Uh, Dan, um, talk with us about Chapter Ten. Uh, I think that we think we know a lot about the Romans who executed jesus um, what What are you uh going to help us see about these characters who um, who are intimately involved in what we know as Easter?
2: Well, we, as we know, the first century was a time where Rome dominated. Rome was the superpower in the world. uh This was also a time of what historians call Pax Romana, where there was a peace, general peace in the world. They came at a great cost. Rome could be brutal to its enemies, and they um you know it was it, it was at that cost. but there was a time of peace uh Rome was ruled by Caesars increasingly they be, began to be viewed as more than just leaders but as gods they were worshipped uh It was a very religious. Um, society where there was cult practices they had absorbed the gods from other nations that they had conquered. people were expected to participate in those. so you have this collision of the kingdom of kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. this collision between uh the entrance of Jesus into the world and the Roman empire which which actually came to a head at Jesus trial and crucifixion at the time in the first century. you would have thought the most powerful people in the world are the Romans. And you would not have looked much at this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth and think he has any power. But today we only remember Rome as kind of a footnote to the story of Jesus. Uh, Paul would later say that Jesus came in the fullness of time at just the right moment. And really, it was the perfect time for Jesus to come into the world because of the Roman rule Uh, they had. There's many reasons for that. They built a highway system. So the church was planted along the Roman highway system after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, There was kind of one language. The Greek language was pretty ubiquitous throughout the Roman Empire, Um, things like that. It's interesting. Rome was put in the position of executing Jesus uh, because only they could could carry these executions out. So they were technically the people who killed Jesus. And yet Jesus on the cross says, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Because we know that Jesus, no one took Jesus' life. He laid it down, as he said, that he could have summoned armies from heaven and he didn't, that he willingly went to the cross. He accepted the cup of God's wrath to go to the cross. So really, it wasn't the Romans who killed Jesus. They were just uh, tools in the hand of God as part of this plan from the beginning of time. One more thing about the Romans I find interesting. Uh, the Romans would have been hated by most of the Jewish people. They would walk every day and they would see the flag flying high above their land. It would be a symbol that of everything they had lost, that they no longer had their independence. Uh, they, they didn't like the crushing Roman rule, the high taxation, all of those things. And yet Jesus found time in his ministry to point out the faith of a Roman centurion. Uh, There's a story of a Roman centurion who travels a great length and comes to Jesus. This is a man who commands 100 men underneath him. And he comes to Jesus and he he begs Jesus to heal his servant. This is uh, a soldier from the most powerful fighting force in the world at the time, begging this itinerant rabbi to heal his servant. And Jesus says, I have not found great faith in all of Israel like this. In other words, of all the faith he's seen, Not the scribes, not the religious people, not even his own disciples. It's the faith of this Roman centurion. Um, At the cross, we see a Roman centurion saying, surely this must have been the Son of God. In the book of Acts, we see um, Peter going to Cornelius' house, the house of a Roman soldier, and, and essentially blessing God's work in his life. So Jesus is saying, the Gospels are saying, that the Gospel is not just restricted to the Jewish people, but it's for the whole world. And even the despised Romans, some of them uh, could become Christians. And really, you wonder how much it reverberated reverberated through the Roman Empire, even through the Roman Legion, this message of Jesus.
0: So um, I'm talking with Dan Darling. The book is The Characters of Easter. You can find Dan at DanielDarling.com. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the book we have in studio— Text the word book to 877 933 2484. Um, Dan, let's, um, if we can, pivot here to maybe just your reaction to President Biden bringing back the White House um, Faith Partnership Office. Um, The the executive order issued just this past Sunday reestablishing the White House Office of Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, um, something that has not existed um, in the last four years under President Donald Trump, um, but is now back. Uh, Maybe just some of your responses and reactions to that, you know, since the National Religious Broadcasters is certainly the largest collective of religious broadcasters, uh, communicators, um, and we want to have a voice in, you know, in things that happen, particularly in relationship to Free speech and our ability to do what we do each and every day as broadcasters. So maybe just your reaction to um, to this executive order.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think it <clears throat> I see it as a positive sign. Um, this is something that was established under George President George W. Bush, who felt like uh, a lot of the best work in society was done by faith-based groups. Uh, as a conservative, and I agree with him on this, he felt like government has a role can't do everything and there's a lot of a lot of life change happens with faith-based groups and we would say it's Christian groups think of groups like prison fellowship and and there's so many Christian groups that are working in cities around the country on addiction recovery and 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 tutoring children and so many things so this is a positive development um, we'll see where where obviously it leads I do know Melissa Rogers who's headed uh, to to lead this office I think she's worked well with groups of of all religions. Um, I suspect conservative Christians are going to have significant disagreements with president Biden, particularly in areas of religious liberty and areas of of pro-life. We'll have strong disagreements. We'll oppose him vociferously on those things, but there will also be areas that we can work with him. There will be areas of commonality and, and hopefully the administration sees that and uh, sees the, the need to work with groups of all faiths. You know, we, we do believe that we don't want government, you know, Dictating what people of faith can do, but that doesn't mean the people of faith shouldn't bring their convictions into government and help shape p- public policy, and shouldn't uh, work closely with the government to alleviate uh, human suffering. So I think there's opportunity here.
0: Yeah, I, I would um, wholeheartedly agree. Um, so for folks who are not familiar with the uh, with the NRB, with the National Religious Broadcasters. Um, you know, I, I imagine that there are folks who say, well yeah, I mean obviously, you know, Carmen likes them because broadcasting is radio, but broadcasting is now something much bigger and broader um than radio. What what kinds of people are engaged now in the NRB?
2: Well as you said, we we are uh an association of Christian communicators and so we're we're grateful and I th- I think the traditional forms of, of media radio and television are still very strong. Uh, I love Christian radio. I grew up formed by Christian radio, and I still am a huge fan of it. Um, But then you also have some really exciting developments. You know, you have people doing a lot of digital work, uh, internet ministries, digital ministries, uh, a lot of folks doing Christian film. Um, And I think a lot of churches, I think in a post-COVID time, a lot of churches were forced to pivot to digital really quickly. And now the churches are regathering. I think a lot of those churches want to continue doing their digital ministry. And so they're asking themselves, how do we get better at this? How do we network with other places, other churches? How do we get equipped to, to do better at this? And NRB wants to be there to help equip folks. And then we also do advocacy. We're advocating that the platforms are open for the gospel. Uh, most of our ministries are platform dependent. You think YouTube and Uh, Vimeo and uh, iTunes and all these places, Amazon, that we want to make sure that they're open uh, for Christian ministry and that we advocate for free speech and religious liberty as well.
0: All right. That's Dan Darling. He is the Senior Vice President of the National Religious Broadcasters. Uh, You can find the NRB at nrb.org. You can find Dan at dandarling.com. His book, The Characters of Easter, available now and available today right here. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing for the copies we have to give away. Dan, thanks so much. Thank you, Carmen. Appreciate being with you. What a pleasure. What a joy. We'll be right back. All right. uh, A few observations and questions uh, via Zip via our text line. Um, So uh, uh, might this Dan Darling book be good for new believers um, to give away as copies as intentional gifts during this season? Um, Yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. Um, Jill chiming in saying, hey, please add this to your prayer suggestions. The cast of Chosen is currently in Dallas, many of them in in hotels without uh, power, heat or water let's be praying for them they cannot um, they cannot uh, do what they do they can't film right now under those circumstances um, and then um, someone texting in saying asking if I knew that the singer Carmen had died um, and I was not aware of that um, and so let's uh, be lifting up not only um, those fans but uh, but, you know, others who have uh, lost loved ones in these days. All right, George Barna is up next from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. We're going to talk about America's thirst for socialism. You think it's rising or falling? You might be surprised. That's up next for our Mornings with Carmen.
1: If you're a parent trying to raise your kids in a godly home, you probably know this verse from Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That verse from Proverbs may strike a nerve for you, especially if your teens made some bad decisions and wandered from the faith. But it wasn't given as an indictment of parents and their effectiveness. No, it's an encouragement for parents to be intentional about spiritual things. Build godly principles and precepts into your kids' lives, and God will be faithful to care for your kids train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it.
2: Parenting teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: All right, joining me again today, George Barna. We have him on from time to time. We talk about uh, his work at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, and he has some new findings to bring to us today. George, welcome back.
1: Hey, Carmen. Good to be with you.
0: It's great to have you. So you guys did some uh, surveying in and around the 2020 presidential election cycle. Want to tell us, um, want to tell us some of the things that you found?
1: Yeah, I mean, in this particular report, what we're looking at is the fact that, of course, when you look at the Biden administration, a lot of the approach that they're taking is kind of a socialistic approach. So we thought, well, let's find out, as we've been tracking over the last number of years, where do Americans stand on this whole issue of moving America more toward a socialist approach to government and economics and lifestyle? And what was interesting is that if we go back roughly three years in time, what we find is that uh, a little bit more than four out of 10 Americans, 41 percent back in January of 2018, were saying that they believed that they would prefer socialism to capitalism. But the week of the election, when we asked people exactly the same question, what we found is that it dropped from 41 percent to 32 percent and it's dropped in a lot of significant segments in the population. And I think that's really interesting that as we now have what so many people have been asking for before, a government that is pro-socialism, suddenly fewer people are interested in it.
0: Yeah, I find that pretty fascinating. I mean, if if we just think about language like democratic socialism or socialism, Um, maybe part of what's going on is people don't even know what we're talking about.
1: Well, I can certainly confirm that that's the case. Uh, You know, I I look back at a companion study that we've done where we asked people which they would prefer, socialism or capitalism. We got a, a large portion, about four out of 10 people saying socialism. And then after that, we gave them situations where on the one hand, there was a socialist solution to a situation, and on the other hand, there was a capitalist solution to the situation. And we asked them which of those solutions they prefer. And we had, I don't know, six, seven, eight of those scenarios. And what we found is in every one, by a huge margin, Americans, without attaching names to either of those solutions, when they just heard what the approach would be, By a huge margin in each case, people prefer the capitalistic solution. And so, you know, we were talking about things like individual ownership of property by a 12 to one margin. People wanna keep that in place. Uh, Whether or not they want the government to take its direction from people or people take its life direction from the government. By a six to one margin, Americans said they wanna give the government direction, not vice versa. Uh, again, uh, price of goods, you know, should it be based on the free market or government policies? By a six to one margin, people want the free market to dictate prices. A- and it goes on and on in terms of self-reliance, private enterprise, uh, the power of the government, the role of government leaders. You know, are they, are they elite experts? Are they servant leaders? We didn't use that language. That would throw it. But, I mean, that was the essence of it. And, and so in each case, a huge margin of people were saying, yeah, you know what, I'd prefer the solution that turns out to be capitalistic. And then at the end, again, we asked people, so, you know, these things that you chose were capitalistic in nature. uh, You know, if you had your choice now, which one would you choose? There was a big drop when we asked them socialism versus capitalism. Once they became a little bit better informed, a little more educated. I think that's really one of the big issues we've got in America today.
0: I think that's, um, you know, that's sort of a key to this conversation. There's this, um, as you note, educational deficit related to what is capitalism? How is it foundational um, to the way our economic system functions in the United States of America? What is socialism? What would it mean for um, our uh, economic systems in the United States to be completely rebuilt in that way? what would we lose? Um, and, and if so, what would we gain? Those kinds of conversations are really important, but those take a long time. Those aren't soundbite conversations. Those are the kinds of conversations that go into you know, sort of the scenarios of, well, what if this and what if that and which one of these uh, you know, outcomes would you prefer and the road between here and there. That's an educational process that needs to happen um, really with every, with every segment of the culture.
1: Well, it's true. And I think one of the conclusions that we can draw from all this research is that what people are really telling us is they don't know what the options are, but they feel like we need to change something, that there are a lot of things in their scope of observation and experience that is not working. And so they're open to change. They're feeling kind of uncomfortable with where things are at. They don't know the alternatives And so I think that says something about our educational process, about even our media process, and and certainly what goes on in families, the kind of conversations that need to take place between parents and children to prepare them for these major kinds of decisions that they'll get to make in life. So, uh, you know, I look at this as a very positive thing. If we can keep this on the table, keep that conversation going, dig deeper, understand what the options are. I think ultimately people will get it and they will opt for freedom rather than oppression.
0: I'm talking with George Barna. We're talking about um, some of the latest research they've done at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Give me life,
1: Daniel,
0: the Give me hope Continuing my conversation now with George Barna. We are, uh, we are in the midst of a conversation um, about some research just done following the 2020 election. So it's the Cultural Research Center 2020 post-election survey. If you want to find it, you just go to arizonachristian.edu, or you can go directly to, I'm pretty sure there's an easier one, culturalresearchcenter.com. That's where I clicked, and I am looking at the third in a series of Of conversations related to this, so I'm looking, George, at the report number three from your Cultural Research Center post 2020 election survey. America's thirst for socialism has plummeted. Um, I'm wondering if you know when you when you think about how quickly this took place. This is really a fairly sharp and rapid rejection of socialism, just from the 2018 numbers that you reported versus the 2020 numbers um, discovered in this survey, you know, is there any, to what do you attribute
1: that? Well, I think a lot of it, Carmen, had to do with the 2020 campaign season. Mm -hmm. What you had was a group of more than a dozen Democrats, almost two dozen Democrat candidates for the presidency, who seemed to be tripping over each other, outdoing each other in terms of the, the kind of socialist platform that they wanted to propose to the American population. And so for months and months, of course, the media covered it in great detail, and so you had Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang and Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, many others who were pushing all these kinds of socialist policies as the prescription for what they said were America's ills. And I think in many ways, it was the first time that a lot of Americans got an up- front, you know, a a close personal look at what socialism would be like. And so they began to understand what it meant to have a strong and expanded and very active federal government that was promising a myriad of free services, but in exchange for things like much higher taxes, restricted personal freedoms, more extensive government regulation and authority and power and so it was a very kind of a very different kind of lifestyle that was being proposed and i think for many people obviously not all because th- there's still you know the the equivalent of 80 million people in america who say they prefer socialism but now you've got more than double that about 170 million who were saying no i think i'll stick with capitalism it was the first time during that election cycle that people had that kind of stark contrast between the capitalistic approach, the marketplace approach of Mr. Trump and the socialistic approach of all these Democratic candidates. So I think in many ways what the schools have failed to do in terms of teaching people what what uh, the difference is between these two approaches, that campaign may have done.
0: I find myself wondering a little bit, George, about um, the influence of people's experience under covid um, people did not like the restrictions placed upon them. They did not like the restrictions placed upon their businesses. They did not like uh, the way the government suddenly had great influence uh, over their ability to earn uh, earn money. Um, they did not like the government's response in most communities across the country related to uh, deliverance of public education. They did not like – I mean on and on and on and on and on, right? They just didn't like um, – their experience of the way the government or what what life becomes like when the government really does take control of everything. Do you think there's any influence there in terms of the way people responded in November 2020 versus the way they might have responded in 2018?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Garmin. And, you know, I, I happen to live uh, most of the year in California. And so here you've even got a governor who has said that, look, uh, liquor stores and strip clubs, these are essential services. Churches, nah, close them. And so you're starting to see the different kinds of value systems that come into play when you have an elitist government, uh, a very strong-armed government. You know, they're they're trying to take away all kinds of rights and opportunities from people. You're having to rely on government for... Uh, a mere pittance in terms of money, 600 bucks. Okay, great. But could I have a job instead? You know, well, no, you can't. We're going to keep the businesses closed. Uh, Many parents right now, one of the trends that we'll probably talk about one of our future conversations is that more and more parents are choosing to homeschool their children. And these are not all faith based decisions that these parents are making. In many cases, what's happened is because now parents have to be more involved in their children's education because the kids have been sent home. Apparently, schools are no longer an essential service either. So what's happening is they're seeing what's happening in the classroom by being there when the teachers are teaching online, and they don't like what they see. And so all of these things, I think, have been an eye-opener for the American population, Americans, as I've mentioned before, we're not deep thinkers. We like to do rather than to think or reflect. And so here's a situation where we're being forced to think about what are the choices, what are the options. It's something we haven't done before in this context. And so now that we've got more evidence about what socialism means at at a ground level, you know, kind of in the trenches, the reality of socialism, uh, more and more Americans are saying, nah, it's not for us.
0: When we think about the ideological foundations of our national economic system and our system of governance, and you, uh, let's just say you get to be the... Um, cradle-to-grave education czar of America for the next 12 months. What um, what do people need to learn or relearn or unlearn um, in, in this particular subject matter area?
1: Well, I, I think maybe the most important lesson for parents is that you cannot pass off the education of your children to a bunch of people you don't know who we do know have a different value system, who we do know are all part of unions that have a whole different set of allegiances and where curriculum will be used, that if you were to sit down and read through that curriculum, at least a lot of Christian parents, certainly conservatives across the country, would be aghast at what is being taught and is what, and what is not being taught And so I would say it's incumbent upon every parent in America to set aside more time to devote to their children's education. Maybe they won't be doing the education, the educating, but they need to be intimately involved, knowing what their kids are being taught, who they're being taught by, what the implications of those lessons are, what kind of behaviors are expected or approved of and disapproved of all of these things that most parents our research shows don't give a second thought to they're wrapped up in their own lives in terms of their jobs and their mortgage and their hobbies and their relationships and all the things that are central to who they are as adults well if you're gonna have children you got to take the responsibility with the child and And so, part of that is really understanding what's going on in the educational process. If that were to happen, I think we would see a mushrooming of enrollment in Christian schools, private schools, home schools, all of those alternatives
0: yeah all right well i am um i I am particularly interested in the national conversation related to education and and certainly comprehensive educational reform i I hear from people frequently across a really wide range of backgrounds and interests, and and everybody agrees on this one topic. Like, we have got to figure this question out in terms of how the next generation of Americans um, is going to be educated and how, you know, we the people are going to make our voices heard and, you know, and change the process Um, for the good of all. So uh, this is a conversation I'm intensely interested in continuing to have with you as well, George. So that's George Barna from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. You can check out all of the reports related to the 2020 post-election survey that they have done at culturalresearchcenter.com. George, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. Hey, hearing that um, uh, reminder about Afternoons with Bill Arnold, um, today is Ash Wednesday and my husband Jim and I are going to be guests on Bill's show. He and Peter Kapsner have been doing a series on prayer on Wednesday afternoons. Um, And today, Jim and Carmen LaBerge are their guests talking about prayer on Ash Wednesday on uh, Afternoons with Bill Arnold. So I think we're on at four. I'd have to look that up. Go ahead and tune in for Bill's entire broadcast um, so that you don't miss any part of it because it's really, really good. Tune in to hear Susie Larson as well in the afternoons. Um, we have a great lineup all day long to not only keep you company, but really help you develop uh, your sense of awe in relationship to glorifying God and hopefully your sense of being more fully equipped to walk your faith out into the world that God so loves. Our heart's desire is your discipleship, like that we might walk with you as you walk with Christ, and that as we walk together, we might learn from one another, and most certainly from the Word of God, how we ought to live. That's that's kind of what we're all about here, Uh, introducing people to Jesus, as Bill likes to say, depopulating hell, um, and growing together not only in fellowship with one another and in praying with with and for one another, but actually encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's that's our heart's desire. Um, thank you for listening during this hour. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next, and obviously a full day of great programming ahead right here at MyFaithRadio.com. And on the Faith Radio app. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.